Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 216 Teaching Mindful Awareness to Children. We're joined this week by Susan Kaiser Greenland to explore how she brings mindful awareness to children and teens in a secular context. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn, and I'm joined today in the home studio in our new place in Los Angeles with a very special guest, Susan Kaiser Greenland. Susan, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with the Buddhist Geeks today. Oh, well, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it's a real treat to do this in person, as always, because we get to actually connect and see each other live. It's nice. Yeah, it makes a difference. It does. It makes a difference. It does. And I'll just share a little bit of your background to give people a sense of kind of where you're coming from and what you do. You're the founder of a program called the Inner Kids Program, and you're primarily teaching mindful awareness to children and teens, and I guess getting kind of awareness of what you're doing out to a larger audience as well through that. And then you're also the author of a new book called The Mindful Child, which we'll get into quite a bit. And finally, I wanted to mention too that you're a parent. Yes, I have two wonderful kids. And you said that they've kind of grown up now. They're not little children anymore. They're kind of older children. Yeah, my daughter is a sophomore in college, and my son is a junior in high school now. Nice, nice. So this work has treated them well, I imagine. I think so. They might disagree with me, but <laughs> I think so. I mean, if you asked either of them if they were considered themselves mindful children, they would probably roll their eyes. But you see a lot of these attributes in their behavior, which makes me very happy. And I wanted to start because, of course, this is a show on Buddhism for the most part, to kind of get your background as a practitioner yourself and kind of hear what is your sort of relationship to Buddhist meditation or your experience with Buddhist meditation. Yeah, well, I have a funny religious background. My father was Catholic. My mother was Presbyterian. And they got married at a time that my father had to give up his relationship with the Catholic Church in order to marry a Protestant. But my father actually was far more religious in my mind than my mother. They're both passed away now. She might disagree with me, but that's what it looked like as a child. And my father's mother was somehow related to some bishop in the Catholic Church. So it was like a really big deal for them. So when it came time for them to have kids... My father really, really cared that we had some religious background. So he would walk us to church every Sunday, give us a nickel and later a dime and finally a quarter for the plate and would put it in. But he didn't really come into church unless if we were singing or something. And then he'd walk us home. So very early on, I learned about how these religions could actually bring people more apart than together. So then eventually my grandmother would take us to Mass, and I was going to church. And then when I grew up, I fell in love with this Jewish guy. And so I married a wonderful Jewish man, and we have two children who were both bar and bat mitzvah. So in that process, I never joined any of these things because I was so hyper-aware of how all of these different religions could actually bring people apart rather than bringing them together. 
And I think from such an early age, having been in all these different religious locations, I started feeling the same thing, whether I was in the temple, whether I was in the church, whether I was at a mass, or whether I was out on the beach, or whether I was walking in the yard. So when I found Buddhism, it just made a lot of sense to me, more of the practice and the path rather than having to join something, and a way to develop the capacity to access that sense of being connected with something else or something greater than So that's how I got started, and then I was very lucky when I moved to Los Angeles because I met Ken McLeod, who was an extraordinary, extraordinary teacher. And at that time, he was working with students individually, which I don't know that he is anymore. And so I developed a wonderful relationship with him, and he's been my primary teacher for a long time. I also spent a couple years studying with somebody, Ruth Gilbert, who I don't know if you know, but she's in the Dzogchen tradition. And of course, I've been influenced by Jack Kornfeld and Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg and all of the work that they've done. I've always been a big believer in, which Joseph talks about in One Dharma, which is getting some really solid training in one tradition, but then sitting with everybody who kind of draws you in. So I sat with Garchin Rinpoche, I've sat with the inside guys, I've sat with all sorts of wonderful, wonderful people, and it all has informed my practice. And, you know, this is a, a real common dichotomy or sometimes even a tension in the Buddhist world, which is that you're doing something that's more, we would call it part of the more mindful-based awareness practices, more secular in nature, um, like mindfulness-based stress reduction, different types of movements. So we are starting to get a broader category of the mindfulness movement. And then at the same time, you've got a deep grounding in Buddhist meditation practice. How do you see the two of these relating? Because sometimes they're kind of at odds, actually. Well, I hear what you're saying about them being at odds, but I think from a practice standpoint, they're never at odds. But I think from kind of a from a separate standpoint of sometimes perception, they may be at odds. But from a practice standpoint, they're never at odds. I mean, for me, you just start thinking of liberation. What's liberation? Well, it's not something that just happens on the cushion. It's something that you take out into real life. So I like to talk about that as love with legs, which is something I borrowed from Cornell West. So I don't really see it being at odds, but I really respect what you're saying. And I have heard it spoken about as if it's at odds. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, sure. I think the at odds piece that I've noticed, and I haven't necessarily felt it myself, but there's a sense sometimes from the the Buddhist camp that the, somehow the secular-based stuff is sort of diluting or watering down or leaving out important pieces. Um, well, I'm probably in that camp. <laughs> so, but I, don't see, but I don't see that as, as at odds with making these practices secular. Mm. I do think that if you're going to practice and teach, especially teach mindfulness, you have to have really solid grounding in the practice. So I may be in that camp then that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. So it sounds like you're kind of for an approach that has a deep grounding for those that are going out and applying this in a more secular context. Oh, I, I don't see how you cannot be. I mean, that's what you're teaching. I mean, I get such a kick out of this. Would anyone ever consider hiring a violin teacher who didn't play the violin, you know, and would you ever consider not hearing the teacher play the violin before actually having your child go and take violin lessons? A math teacher, they learn math. I always thought it was kind of funny that anybody would ever even consider that they could teach mindfulness or meditation without a strong practice background and not just teaching. Yes. Does it make sense? It I mean, does, it does. And, and, you know, my next question may tie into this whole 
quagmire a little bit. Yeah. Um, because, you know, I had the experience, like many people, I think, of growing up in a situation where there weren't many people giving me tools to explore my inner life, to look at things with awareness, to learn how to regulate my emotions or become aware of my emotional life, to kind of be in relationship to the inner world. And I know it's changing some, but it's not something that most people are aware of growing up, especially in places like school and, of course, at home, where maybe there's a little bit more awareness of that through different religious traditions or whatnot. And how I see that kind of tying into what you were just saying is there seems like this broader thing in our culture of just not really acknowledging the inner world. And I wonder if that's part of the reason, you know, in things like meditation, you might have people thinking they can just be a teacher with very little experience because there's not the sense that the inner world is as rich and vibrant and and complex as, say, playing a musical instrument or learning mathematics, which, strangely enough, is something that happens only in the mind. It's part of the inner world. <laughs> but anyway, I was wondering if you could say a little bit about this sort of situation, this cultural situation of, of not learning Yeah, no, I'm with tools. you. I'm with you. And I would say that I think most people, almost all the people that I've met, and I spend a lot of time right now training adults in practicing or developing mindfulness with kids, And I would say that the vast, vast majority all want to be responsible and do what's right for the kids and for the work. I would say that it probably comes from a general sense that people don't know what they don't know. So you can read a wonderful mindfulness program, and you can have all of it be happening in your head, and none of it ever get down in your body. And then it turns into a fantastic beautifully repackaged social-emotional learning program, which has great value. Uh, There's not enough social-emotional learning out there, and it's a really great value to have these programs. I'm not at all saying that these are somehow less than anything else, but an embodied mindfulness program is different. And from where I sit, it's the mindfulness element. It's the embodiment of that and the ability to rest in a wide open state of awareness, even if it's for that long, which kids can do. They're pretty close to it already. That's the yeast that makes the bread rise in a social emotional learning program. Because as long as it's in your head and you're thinking, 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 if a kid is in a situation of conflict, they're not going to be able to flip that switch out of the thinking mind and go back into what I call the feeling mind or the intuitive mind. You need the embodiment and you need and you need that modeled for you from the teachers. So what I would say is that people don't mean any harm, and they really are doing what they view as being really helpful and the right thing, and they're doing a lot of good work out there. But whether or not it's an embodied program or something that's really still very much in the head is the question I always, I always look at when I'm looking at programs. I mean, I read a lot of them, and I'm really lucky because I'm in a position to read a lot of them, and there's just a lot of thinking going on. And unless if you have a really strong practice that's steeped in practice, even if somebody says there's a lot of thinking going on, they're not going to understand what that means, that we're trying to be more feeling than thinking. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. It sounds like embodiment is is a kind of invisible piece of teaching something like mindfulness, that you're always modeling something for the kids or for whoever is being taught. It's hard to get on the page. It's hard to get the embodiment on the page when it's in the room. Everybody sees it and feels it, even if they don't know exactly what it is. But to get it on the page is tough. Mm. It sounds like there's almost a corollary with things like in the Tibetan tradition of a teacher transmitting some sort of understanding somehow. Yeah, 
I would say that's true. Yeah, although it's not nearly as sort of esoteric. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd say that's true too. <laughs> There's actually a really, really wonderful video on your website. I was watching before we spoke today, and you were teaching a small group of children. They're probably six, seven years old, maybe even younger. I think those were four-year-olds. Four-year-olds, wow. And you were teaching them kind of how to tune into their breath, using their hands to put on their stomach and just notice their breathing as a way to come back down into a focused state or just calm state. And you're using this wonderful example of uh, baking soda in water and showing how when you put it in there, it just gets kind of crazy and agitated. And then when it settles, like when you tune into the breath and are able to settle. It's interesting because the methods you you explore in the mindful child are very simple like that. It's not that you're necessarily teaching kids to meditate. And I wanted to ask you, you know, if you could share a little bit about the types of things that you share with kids and also that you share with parents. Yeah, I mean, with kids, they're already there most of the time. I mean, especially the young ones. It doesn't take a lot to help them shift into more of a wide-open state of awareness. And so... Um, the simpler, the better. And also the more visual and the more the more you can do with arms and legs and hands. Everything that can get it more into the creative kind of side of the mind and the more embodied side of the mind. So, for example, that baking soda and water thing, which I've used for years, is now morphed into a, it then morphed into a snow globe. And then later it morphed into a glitter ball because those glitter balls are very popular. So you use the glitter ball. Um, we use uh, thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs sideways a lot to talk about mind-body states. Is it easy or hard to sit still? Thumbs up or thumbs down? These things are ways of identifying what's happening in your mind and body without labeling it good or bad at the moment. Uh, We talk about mindfulness as being a way of seeing the world with attention, balance, and compassion that leads to a different way of being in the world. So we take everything and really simplify it And once it's simplified, then we apply it to real life. Because with kids, especially the older kids and teens, you can't get buy-in unless if they think, okay, this is going to be able to help me do X, Y, and Z. And I'd say that's probably the place that the mindfulness and kids' work I do deviates the most from the classical teachings. I mean, you really need to connect it to how is this going to help right now. And then once you do it, you get the buy-in, they have the experience, and then they start to make other connections themselves. Mm, very cool. And you know, there's a part of the book where you said that really what you're doing are kind of planting small seeds that can come to fruition at other times and other ways. What kinds of ways do you see those type of seeds being sprouted with kids or people that you know grow up and then are able to take these things with them? Well, it's just so sweet. You see them, I mean, very early on, they'll sing these simple little songs to help them calm down. They'll be in the back seat of the car, and mom and dad are fighting or under a lot of stress. They'll sing a song, and mom and dad start laughing, and then mom and dad need to sing the song. Or the great one that so many people have had the experience of where you introduce a mindfulness bell into the home of some sort, any kind of bell, and the idea is that you ring the bell and everybody takes a pause. And when all of a sudden mom and dad are in the middle of some upset, you know, the child rings the bell. And it's really fantastic, and it's a way of incorporating what they're learning into the whole family life. And those are the kind of things you start to see. You, you see people avoiding conflict through you know, breath awareness. You see people starting to make connections between service and interconnection 
And maybe the most powerful thing of all, I think, for young kids is not just the notion of clear seeing, which we get through the ball and through the baking soda, but also the notion that things pass, things change. And if young kids and when young kids start to realize, okay, this feeling is really rotten right now, feels really bad, but if I can just hold on, it's going to pass like a rainy day, that's very, very powerful for both the kids and the parents and has implications throughout an entire lifetime. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.